Welcome back to the show, chef. So what do you do when you're fried? You are crispy. It goes beyond just being in the weeds and you can no longer just pedal faster, but you have to look at yourself in the mirror and wonder like, when is shit going to change? Like, when am I going to get beyond this feeling of not being appreciated or people beating me down for prices or for the fact that no one actually gets what I do other than others who do the same as you? Well, that's why I decided to bring on Chef Chris Spear. Not only is he an accomplished chef with plenty of expertise in shifting his not only career trajectory, but you know the things that he actually does. He's got a successful podcast, um, Chefs Without Restaurants, um, that educates and illuminate the fact that it just so happens that the skill sets that we build up in the culinary and hospitality industry are at a premium in other industries. They want what we got, but it's sometimes not so clear to us what we're about and what we do and what we're really good at. That's why Chris is going to talk about his journey and about the shifts that he needed to make in order to create a life that was more about spending time with his family and being present to his young children than it was, you know, selling himself to the next customer who was coming in off the street. I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode because there is a lot to divine and he brings it. So if you're ready, then let's get to it. This is Chef Life Radio, and I'm your host, Chef Adam Lamb. I'm a culinary career coach dedicated to assisting hospitality professionals just like you to enjoy their careers without having to sacrifice their lives. Be sure and grab this episode's exclusive bonus content by becoming a sustaining member of the Chef Life Radio membership crew. Find out more at chefliferadio.com forward slash support. The link is in the show notes. Now let's get to the good stuff. So we want to welcome to the show, Chris Spears. Good morning, chef. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's uh, my honor to have you. We've been kind of dancing around one another on the podcast charts for quite some time, and I'm really excited to be able to speak to you today, primarily about this idea of, well, let me back up a little bit. So it seems to me that there's a uh, an undercurrent that's occurring right now in the culinary industry where there's a lot of chefs tenured, very well-to-do, very well-credentialed chefs who are just completely fucking burnt out, man. Absolutely. They're, they're leaving the industry. If only to, uh, well, I shouldn't say leaving the industry. It seems like they're leaving Main Street. Like they're sick and tired of the grind of running a restaurant and they're opting to do something that maybe fits a little bit more within their lifestyle, such as uh, catering companies and stuff like that. So I really love to highlight chefs who've taken a different route um, and still stayed true to their to their chef roots. So why don't you kind of give me a background on where you've been, your career as a chef, and why you decided to transition into podcasting? Yeah. Well, I talk about how I've never ever worked in a restaurant, even though I've been in the food world for 31 years now. <laughs> so I worked at Burger King when I was a little younger. I did a little time at Boston Market. I don't really think those count, but I yeah, I mean, I've always in been interested in food and cooking. I've said I was a little fat kid growing up. I love being in the kitchen, being around my mom cooking, or when we went to see my great-grandmother. Uh, I went to culinary school. I was at Johnson & Wales. I got my bachelor's in culinary. And, uh, you know, I graduated in 1998. 
So at that time, when you graduated culinary school, especially with a bachelor's, I think, you know, the expectation was you were going to go into a restaurant, maybe a resort, something of that nature, hopefully start at like a sous chef level or so. But the reality is it was expensive. I came out, my student loan repayment was $404 a month for 10 years. That's what I had left after already paying into it. My parents were not able to help. And I was getting offered jobs in the ballpark of, you know, like $7 an hour or so with no benefits at restaurants and stuff. And that was really tough. And then there was a retirement community in my area and they were doing a job fair and they were looking for kitchen help. And the offer was, you know, kind of lead line cook thing, 11 plus an hour, every other weekend off, no nights, you know, full benefits, retirement. And I was like, what? You know, it wasn't even something that was really spelled out in culinary school. You didn't think that that was something. And that started me on a career path. And soon I was able to move up to sous chef there. And then I, I moved cross country to Seattle, got out there, looked at some places, had some great interviews. I thought I would maybe be the saucier at the Space Needle. That seemed good. But, you mm. know, the pay was like $32,000 a year, something like that. And again, found a retirement community and they hired me. So that kind of set me on this path. And then, you know, it's taken me all over the country. I've worked at places like Ikea. I've mm. done, I was a catering director in a hospital, but I was in Pennsylvania. Now we're talking about 20 years ago. I worked for a catering company a little bit and They only did big events, mostly corporate events. But every once in a while, a a husband would call and say, hey, would you come and do a dinner for two at my house? Just, you know, me and my wife. It it doesn't make sense if you're a big catering company. It's not worth it. But after getting so many of these, the owner said, hey, Chris, would you want to do this? You can keep all the money, use our kitchen. I think it'll be good, you know, maybe lead generation for us. And I started doing that, which again, you know, this was probably like 2005. Nobody was really doing that kind of stuff. And I said to my wife, is it crazy? Could I like, I don't know what I'd call it, but like, could you be a caterer cooking for like maybe two to 20 people and have like no overhead or very low overhead, right? Not have to have staff. And I just had that in the back of my mind. And then we moved down here to Maryland where I'm now took another job as an executive chef at a retirement community, but I wanted to figure out my exit strategy. And I was like, I'm in a great location. I'm in the Metro DC area. I'm like, I'm going to start looking at this like personal chef thing. And the great thing about that is you can do it on the side while you're working a job and, you know, working the job I was at, I had every other weekend off. Actually, when I was hired, I only had to work one weekend a month. So I just started picking up gigs, you know, one a month, two a month, just to see if it was viable. And then after doing it for about five years on the side, left my job and took it full time. And now coming up this November, it'll be seven years of me working full time as a personal chef doing dinner parties in people's homes. And just as an aside to our listeners, and they've probably heard me say this before, but if you've been brought up or trained, shamed, and conditioned to believe that your only success is going to come through your personal perseverance and the realization of your personal vision of cuisine on Main Street in a restaurant, then you need to take a step back because inevitably that is going to require you giving up quite a bit of your personal life, of your personal relationships. If you're married and have children, as I was coming up, those decisions often come at a heavy price. And yet there are industries out there that celebrate the fact that we have not only professional lives and personal lives, healthcare being one of them. And currently there is an arms race amongst retirement communities uh, and they're hiring 
away some of the best hotel chefs in the world to run these communities uh, because after all, food is a huge focus with that. And Chris, did you perceive that energetically working in a retirement community was a little bit different than like working in a regular restaurant? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it depends on where you work. So the last place I was at, I was there for 10 years and we had 750 residents and we had like four distinct dining venues on campus. Mm -hmm. So it was crazy. It was more like being a hotel chef where you're doing, you know, like you maybe have a restaurant, but also doing banquet and catering, but then times two. So, you know, I'm trying to manage two cafes that are open breakfast, lunch and lunch and dinner, but also two dining rooms that were high volume served. So it actually was, I'd put it kind of on par where I was at with kind of like a, a hotel slash catering mm. kitchen. But, you know, I didn't see why we couldn't be doing the best stuff there. Yes, there are nursing homes, but we're talking about people who are retiring at like 65 who are, you know, taking world cruises and going to Vietnam mm -hmm. and are interested in global cuisine. So I built a program and it took a good few years to get on its feet. But I mean, we had a vac machine. We had a circulator there. Mm -hmm. I had a whole butchering kit, including bone saws. And we were, you know, breaking down heritage breed pigs, cooking pig's head, doing head to tail dinners. I built a cocktail program there. We were making vinegars like in the back. I had like a cage of ferments that we were doing. You can do interesting stuff. Right. You know, it, it depends on your GM and, you know, kind of the obviously the customers. But I felt if I could build a program that people would want to come to, then it will just progressively get better. Right. Because I wanted to get some young people in and say, yes, not only do we have the benefits of better pay, better benefits, but you're going to be able to learn stuff here that you could, you know, that's on par with some of the best restaurants out there. And I think I did that. And and what kind of changes did you th have to make psychologically or emotionally once you shifted from that 10 year of 10 years to now I'm going to start running down some catering business and you know, there's certain business cycles within the year. Sometimes it's either feast or famine. So how did you Definitely. manage that change? I think the big thing is the marketing and how to, and customer acquisition, which is the scariest thing. I'm even going through it right now, you know, seven years in this past month and a half was lean. And you're like, you know, I need to get a little scrappy. I maybe need to do some guerrilla marketing, like hit the streets a little more because you can get complacent, you know, like you, right. you, the customers are coming in and I was at a point where I was turning down customers because I was so busy. And then all of a sudden it drops off and you're like, oh, wow, I've had two months where like, I don't have business. Like, do I need to go back and get a real job or what do I do to figure <laughs> this out? Like you always have to be ahead of it. And I think that's one of the things too, is you can't rest at all. There's no, you know, with a restaurant, you're on a street. So even if you have slow times, like people are going to walk past you, they're going to see that you have a restaurant and hopefully stop in. I don't have a business like that. Mm -hmm. um, and figuring out market fit, you know, I'm not a caterer. I'm not doing a 200 person wedding. I don't go to like, you know, catering expos and stuff like that, but I'm also not a restaurant. So trying to explain what it is I do to people, you know, I'll, I have lots of friends or, or acquaintances and they say, yeah, someday, you know, when I win the lottery, I'll hire you. And I think there's still the perception of that. It's like, you know, my dinner started a hundred dollars a head. It's, it's what's on par with going to a nice restaurant, but it's not like you need to be a millionaire to have me come cook for you. I mean, I can sure. easily drop a hundred dollars at any restaurant. So for me, the big shift was like, one, I do everything. I have no one not, you know, I have an accountant do my taxes at the end of the year, but besides that, I don't have helpers. I don't have marketing. I don't have anyone doing social media. I don't have anyone ever helping me like cook, 
like get it going. So being a one man show, being comfortable with that, learning what your weaknesses are and learning how to improve in those areas. And one of the benefits of my job is I get to talk to a lot of chefs from all different markets and in all different market segments. And one of the things that seemed to pop out at me quite a bit was this idea of the folks who decided to take a a similar tact like you, create their own personal catering business, whether that's small or large. Uh, Resoundingly, one of the things that they said that they were just sick and fucking tired of was customers who didn't understand what went into it and, and thereby would beat them down in price. And they felt like because of everything that they put into it, like that should be the last conversation that we're having right right now is when you're trying to beat me down in price. And if you actually knew what I could present, there wouldn't be a conversation. And is that something that that you've run up against? A hundred percent. I don't think people understand. I say, you know, let's say I'm doing a dinner tonight and it's six people, eight people. It could take three days to do like I do custom menus. So we have the time invested on the computer end where it's the back and forth of like, what do you like to eat? Here's my menu. We, you know, figure that out. And then I've got to shop for the ingredients. I've got to, you know, prep some ahead of time. So I might be renting and going to a commercial kitchen there to do some prep work. I get to your travel. I mean, I'm traveling in the DC area. It could take two hours to get to your home. Mm-hmm. get there. I get there 90 minutes before dinner, et cetera. You know, I'm, I'm there. It's, it's like a full day commitment. Then I got to come home and wash all the stuff and I might not feel like doing it at midnight. So now it creeps <laughs> into the next day. So it's, it's a lot. And I've had a number of requests just the past month or so where people, you know, I ask on my questionnaire, what your budget is $35. What do you like to eat? Mm. Crab steak. <laughs> like, and I said to someone, and I tried, you know, I tried to educate without being snarky, but I said to someone the other day, like, I just took, I just, I just went out to dinner with my family this week. My son's cheesesteak was $16.95, and that's without tax and tip. Like, 30, $35 is your budget for a four-course dinner that I'm doing in your home, and you want high-end degree? Like, I don't, what planet are these people on? Right, and so how do you, like you said, you, you don't want to necessarily educate them or beat them over the head. But at what point do you just say, this is not, this is not worth my time? Yeah, I, I totally just let them know. I say, if they come in with that, I say, just so you know, my dinner started a minimum of $100 a head. It looks like that's not in your budget. If you decide that you still want to do this, let me know. And I will put together a custom menu for you. I would rather give you something extra. Like if I feel like it's a stretch, maybe you're going to get like a a free amuse or something like that, but I'm not going to negotiate down. I would rather add value on top of that, which is why my marketing has always been positioning myself towards the high end. There's always people, you know, I say the Super Bowl sells out every year, every single seat (laughs) in there is full. There's people who pay it. There's people who are going to see the Rolling Stones at $5,000 a head for the front row. That's my target market if it has to be. As much as I want to be for the people, what I do price-wise, it, it doesn't make sense. I can't be the Applebee's. Like, it's just not going to work out. Right. And that uh, positioning is is so critical because, from my understanding, you know, even in down markets, Hermes, Coach, you know, upscale luxury brands continue to do well because there are those folks who continue to do well and want quality product. And I just read something the other day, whereas a lot of companies 
So during during the pandemic and the and the and the lockdown and then the breakdown of the supply chain, it was normal for us to turn around and say chicken wings are what now? What what are they this week? And yet now that prices commodity prices are dropping, and if anybody is not looking at at weekly and monthly commodity pricing or futures, they definitely should do that. It's a great way to pre-plan a, a menu when you're perceptively a season away or a quarter away. None of these companies seem to want to bring down their pricing, right? Yeah. <laughs> now right. they're like, okay, we're going to get ours back. And the power of the purse is such that, you know, the only real choice that we have is either to buy it or not buy it. So how are you dealing with rising costs? Yeah. So I've had to look at, I don't want to cut the quality of the ingredients I'm putting in, mm-hmm. but it means doing more with less with some things like I used to use a lot of crab, especially because I'm here in Maryland. The crab mm. is coming off the menu except for center of the plate, unless you want that to be an upsell. Like I used to have starters where there would be a crab salad on a crostini. Mm-hmm. Now it's the exact same thing, but it's a shrimp salad. And people love it because I can get shrimp, even really good wild gulf shrimp. And then I just cook them, chop them up and make it, you know, it's like a mayonnaise fennel kind of thing. I can still give a high quality thing, nice presentation, but taking some of those ingredients out, looking at the cuts of beef, you know, and not getting into, first of all, I never love selling filet, which is what people always say they want. You know, that's one of those like, you know, catering-ish things, which is the most expensive cut of meat. And it's Mm -hmm. like, how do we get away from that? And I think, you know, like I'm big on a short rib and short ribs are not inexpensive anymore. I've seen them go from about $8.99 a pound to $11, $12.99 a pound just in the past year and a half, but it's still much less than ribeyes, strip steaks, things of that nature. How can I still give you a really nice cut of meat with a good presentation? So again, not really um, having to change my menu pricing that much, but just kind of looking at what I'm doing and can I do more with less? Yeah. That's a fantastic way to look at it. Now, it seems to me or perhaps to anybody who's not necessarily as well-versed about the the ins and outs of running your own catering business. It seems to me that, gosh, man, that's a lot, dude. I mean, you're marketing yourself, you're positioning yourself, you're, you know, you're taking care of sales, you're booking by yourself, you're sourcing product, you're prepping it, you're arriving 90 minutes before, you have no help to do that. Is it too much? Yes. <laughs> no, you know, like you you figure you figure things out. So, like for my booking process alone, is there anything that can be streamlined? So, like I have a questionnaire for my customers, and I used to have people email me and say they're interested. Then I would have to email them this document and back mm-hmm. and forth. And now it's a page on my website. And when you get to the about me page where my contact info is, it says if you're interested in having a dinner, this is the first place to start. Click here, and people fill out the information online. Mm-hmm. And then I get that questionnaire before I even have to talk to them. Just things like that. Is there some way you can use automation to do that? Having right. template responses. I mean, yes, you want to come off as personal, but I have all these template emails for like, yes, I'm interested. No, I'm not. And I can just go through really quickly a follow up. Thank you kind of thing. I used to follow up with thank yous on to try and get reviews after dinner and saying, hey, you know, that was great. Can you click here? Now I come to someone's house and I have this a thank you card, but I also have a nice sheet of paper with a QR code and say, hey, I really appreciate you being, you know, having me here. 
I would love a review if you're interested. Here's a sheet with my info. There's a QR code. If you just scan that, it goes right to my website and you can leave a review. You know, take one more email out of the mix. Like anything like that you can do to speed up your flow. I, I switched to using Instacart for a lot of my groceries. And I was really skeptical at first because it was like, you know, what's the quality? Who's the people you know, picking this. But if you're at a restaurant, it's the same thing with Cisco, right? Like you order right. or your produce company, you order a case of corn, it comes in, it looks like garbage. That sucks. But, you know, you get a credit, you send it back and you're going to have to get more. When the pandemic started, one, I wasn't going into grocery stores or as I want to go as little as possible. And I just said, you know, that's a cost of doing business. And if it's going to cost me 3% more to save, you know, two to three hours a day, that's what I'm going to do. And I think you just have to make those concessions. I think a lot of us are hard headed, you know, it's, it's like these people are like, Oh, I go to every farm and like, okay, that sounds great, but I'm not driving to like eight different farms to get all my stuff. Like I, I'll go to the farmer's market and try and do one-stop shopping for that kind of stuff. But the reality is I still need to buy Heinz ketchup and things like that at the grocery store. And so I usually go in and pick my proteins. Like I'll do an order and they'll come out to my car with all my box groceries. And then maybe mm -hmm. I'll park and go in and pick my salmon or whatever, my short ribs. But anything you can do, you know, like running a kitchen, you look at workflows, you watch your employees. How many times are they going to a walk-in for something? Well, that means that thing should actually be in a low boy or something. Right. So ruthlessly <laughs> analyzing your flow. And I think solopreneurs like me don't always do that. So it was just thinking about like, what am I doing over and over again? What is a waste of my time? What do I have to, if anything, pay for to fix? But yeah, I mean, there are days where you're like, man, I'm still making less than I was making seven years ago when I left a job. Should I just throw in the towel and go back to working somewhere? But the reality is the, the work-life balance is so much better. The stress, I mean, I was having physical stress that was associated with, or physical ailments that was attributed to stress of the job I was at. And, you know, where I was on like medicines and having panic attacks at work, like I don't have that anymore. I have stressful days. But to me, I wouldn't trade, you know, any of that. So I'd rather just be at home and hustle trying to get more business than to go back into one of those pressure cooker kitchens. Congratulations, man. <laughs> and then to com complicate things even further, you decide, oh, I'm going to do a podcast. Sure. So <laughs> I didn't jump right to that. So the interesting thing is when you start a successful business, once you get some success, everyone wants to know the secret, right? Mm. So everyone wants to buy you a coffee or a beer. Hey, man, I would, I'm, I want to get out of my restaurant. How do I start a personal chef business? Let's go out for coffee. And you know, I like people and we do that. And after a while, I was like, uh, this is not a good use of my time. We have the internet. Why don't we build a community online? From, But I've always loved it. The idea of people, you know, when I worked in a retirement community, I was a chef, not in a restaurant. And it extends to food truckers and cottage bakers and all kinds of things like that. But I thought, let's build a Facebook group and we can share best resources there. So I don't have to tell you, someone can come and say, what's the first step to starting a food truck? And you can have, you know, potentially five, 10 people answer that question. Um, mm -hmm. For me, a big component of that was gig sharing. I was getting a lot of job leads off of Thumbtack, which mm -hmm. is expensive. But then I found myself, you know, I'd have a party on Friday and someone would want to hire me and I was already booked. It's like, man, I've got all these other friends who are now doing this. How can I share the lead? So again, it was a place where I could just post up to a community and say, hey, I've got a hot lead. These people want a book. It's a thousand dollar gig. Who wants it? And I thought it was going to be, 
literally like eight people I knew here locally. Mm -hmm. I posted about on my private Facebook, but I'm friends with someone who's a writer at the Washington City paper. And she DM'd me that day and said, ooh, can I talk to you tomorrow? Because I would love for this to be an article in the DC City paper on Friday. So we're talking, I mean, the logo was like under, the website's under construction. It's, you know, a non-existent right. logo. And the article runs and I had like 200 people join the community that weekend when I didn't even know what it was because I was expecting it was four people I knew. So we did that for like two years, which was great. And part of Chefs Without Restaurants is getting help when you need it. So, you know, I had uh, parties, they're creeping now into 10, 15. And I would go in the Facebook group and say, who wants to work with me? I'll pay you 200 bucks for four hours. You know, it's a dinner in DC. And I started having friends help. And one night a friend helped me and we were driving back from DC. And he said, why isn't this a podcast? And the response was like, because I'm not a podcaster. Like I'm not in media. I do some blogging. I'm a self-identified introvert. And he said, well, I'll help you with it. We could do this together. It was my buddy, Andrew. He has a food truck called Pizza Llama here in Frederick. And we started talking about that. So we started the, this podcast in November 2019. And Andrew was really the lead. I was more the tech guy. I was the I bought all the stuff too. So, was, you know, I took care of all the post-processing and everything. I would interject some questions. I would give him some questions ahead of time, but he was only with me until COVID because, you know, so we went from November 2019 to March 2020. COVID happened. He said, you know, business is down. I've got to lay some people off from my truck. I think I'm going to do everything myself. I don't have time for this podcast. We were actually doing it all in person at the time. There was a local brewery that was hosting us. We were not comfortable doing in person. So I said, you know what? I think I'm going to take this thing, you know, and, and run with it because then my business kind of dipped for a while. I said, I'm going to have way more time than I know what to do with. Mm -hmm. I kind of like this. And then for me, it was like, oh, now it's remote. I can talk to people all over the world. It's not just a DC area thing. You know, I had never been on Zoom yet. Nobody was Zooming, you know, quite at the beginning of March, 2020. And once that started to be a viable thing, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to get a setup at home and just start doing it. And Andrew never came back. I mean, he's been a guest on the show a couple of times and I love him, but I'm actually happy that it worked out this way. And I just released episode 200 last week and I've just been going strong, but I love the podcasting. I love that it's both tactical. You can come and listen to episodes on customer acquisition, how to price your menu, how to start a food truck. But then you also have really interesting interviews with people who don't have anything. They're not going to necessarily teach you anything, but they're going to talk about being an immigrant coming into this country and what that was like, or, you know, struggles that they've had with mental health. So it's kind of a two shows in one, depending on who the guest is that week. And I'm going to keep doing the podcast as well. Congratulations on episode 200. It's big. You know, I, I try not to put too much stock in numbers and metrics and stuff. And you can get, <laughs> you can get bogged down with that, but you do like to celebrate those wins and say, wow, you know, that's a lot. When you look at the downloads and you're like, and oh, creeping up on 150,000 downloads and, you know, for some people, that's not a lot because they're up in the the big numbers. But I think you have to stop and reflect and say, that's a lot of people who've listened to something you've talked. I, I was listening to a podcast the other day. I don't know if it was Gary Vee or Alex Hormozer or someone who said, you know, it's like followers on Instagram. If you have 400, you feel kind of bad because you're like, that's not a lot of people. Like everyone has these big audiences. He said, but if you were doing a live talk and 400 people came to show up yeah. and just to hear what you had to say, you'd be like, wow, this place is packed. I crammed 400 people in this mm -hmm. room to hear me talk. And I think we're so trained to see these big followings and, and viral things. 
and not really give ourselves credit for that's that's a lot of people who are interested in what you're sharing. Yeah, and there's also the theory of the thousand raving fans, right? Like what mm -hmm. do what do you actually need audience wise size in order to become you know, take care of your costs and then maybe start making a little bit of money. You know, podcasting is not free, although the bar of entry has has dropped dramatically. I remember in 2014 when I started Chef Life Radio, I had to teach myself WordPress and Blurberry. I mean, there was very little support. And now it's such that, you know, with something like Anchor, you know, Jensen Cummings started, started his podcast with his cell phone during the pandemic, parked outside of the gym with his you know, smelly towels hanging up over the windows. <laughs> Crazy. And kudos to you. I mean, you've been your early adopter, really early uh, adopter. Early adopter. And uh, I jokingly say to my wife, I'm consistently about seven and a half minutes ahead of my time. Yeah. <laughs> my entire, I was writing prolifically online in 2016 and 2017 about, about best practices for Foodable and, and a few other magazines. We are chefs online rags. And I look back at some of that stuff and it's just as relevant today as it, as it's ever been, because I think we are, cons we consistently do not learn the lessons. No. Well. It's a shame that we're still talking about the same stuff a decade later, right? I know. I mean, everybody wants to talk about labor and oh my God, where, where are all the people who want to work? You know, I remember echoing the same thing in the nineties and two thousands, you know? So this idea that a lot of these problems are new it is ridiculous. And um, a lot of the solutions have been out there for a long, long time. So <clears throat> there's a listener out there who's just ragged out, man. And there's a lot of them. Uh, how would you suggest uh, they start their pivot? And it, and it could be to anything. But I mean, they know that what what they've, what they've done up until now is not giving them the results that they're looking for. And that might be spending more time with the family, making more money, having some autonomy, some transparency. How does someone go about like taking, um, sitting down and taking a look at their life and saying, something's got to change, man. And how the hell do I change it? Yeah. Well, I'd say if you're looking to do something different, see if you can start it on the side first, you know, like with my business, being a personal chef is a very easy side gig. It, a lot of people have lucratively done it for a number of years because mm -hmm. the way it operates is like, I actually don't have to register with the department of health or anything like that because I'm cooking in people's homes. You know, I, I'd say best things is like have your surf safe and have liability insurance. But other than that, like tomorrow you could go cook at your next door neighbor's house, find out your friends and family who are having celebrations, a uh, anniversary dinner, and just go do it and see if you even like that. And then kind mm. of, you know, plan your escape. If you want to be a graphic designer, start doing that at night on your weekends. Like, don't wait until you are fed up. Because I think we've all been there. We've had a job. Like if we're not looking to start a business, you have a job, you're super frustrated. And then you're like at the point where you need to quit, but like your resume isn't updated. You haven't <laughs> done any networking. You haven't even looked what's out there. And then it's just like a recipe for a disaster. I think even when things are good, you should be thinking about both in life and business. Like, what's my plan? What's my one-year plan? What's my five-year plan? What do I need to do? Where Where do I want to be with my friends and family? For me, it was like also getting the stress under control. Again, like I was not, it was just like, 
it was not a good situation I was in. As much as I enjoyed my job for a lot of things, there were a lot of things that were not good. It, it was kind of a toxic workplace. And I was kind of in a tough spot because I was like a, a middle manager. And people say, well, you're executive chef. You were the middle manager. It's like, yes, because I had a GM and I had a district manager and we were an account where I had a client. And, you know, so I was like five rungs down. So I wasn't necessarily always in the inner circle. But then I also have, you know, subordinates, chef de cuisine, sous chefs, line cooks, et cetera, who don't necessarily always trust me because I'm the guy who has to enforce some of the poli- the policies sure. from above. And that's a tough spot to be in. And I empathize for anyone who's kind of in that position. But for me, it was just setting boundaries. It was like deciding that there were toxic people at work. And every day at lunch, I hated sitting around them and just eating my lunch outside, you know, for uh, me. And and people are like, well, that's so weird and antisocial. I said, well, I can sit here and listen to you talk nonsense and make racist comments and and whatever. Or I can just sit outside in the woods because we were on like a kind of in like farmland. It's like, I, I would just rather every day do that doing guided meditation in my car before I went in every day, just for 10 minutes, I've got the calm app and just sit in my car and close my eyes and listen to it and just kind of like center myself. And I know that's not for everyone, but you know, doing that kind of stuff really changed my life. And then finding activities outside of work, I think is super important. I talk to people about this all the time. So many of us culinarians love it and they live it, you know, hashtag chef life, whatever, hashtag true (laughs) cooks. And then they have nothing. And you saw so much of that with the pandemic when people were then out of work and it was like, they didn't know what to do. Mm. I have so many loves in life and so many things that I enjoy doing and making sure I carve out the time for that. And I think you have to set boundaries. These places, if you're an employee somewhere, they don't own you. And I think a lot of times you feel like you're being owned by them. And I'll say, you know, I was working a ton of hours and before I had kids, it wasn't great for my wife, but I was like super accommodating. You know, Saturday they'd call me. It's like, oh, someone called out. You're this chef. Mm-hmm. You have to be here. And you're like, yep. And then my mom died. Both Actually, both my parents died in a year and they lived in Massachusetts. I spent a lot of the time traveling to, you know, see my mom on her deathbed and take care of their stuff. I regretted the time I, that I didn't spend more time, that I felt like I couldn't be up there as long as I was. So, and then I come back and I caught some shit for it, for being away so long for my job, whatever. So then a couple of years later, I have kids, I, I have twins. And I, I made a promise to myself and my wife that it was not going to be the same with my parents. I was not going to miss my children growing up. I was not going to miss those things. So I'm scheduled to work, you know, this week, I'm off this weekend. And then they say, we need you to come on the weekend. I'm sorry, I can't do it. I've got something, you know, like, I'm already putting in 70 hours this week. I just, I can't because I knew they weren't going to fire me. And they didn't have the ground to stand on at that point. It wasn't that I gave gave up. You know, there's a lot of talk about this, what is the quiet quitting or whatever. It wasn't like quiet quitting if you've seen those articles this year. But yep. I do feel like you get to the point where you say, listen, I'm here all the time. When I'm here, it's go. But there's boundaries. I am not going to answer my phone from my boss every time that I'm home. And just doing that, and it was what it was. And then I said, like, what's my exit plan? I got to get out of here. So, I mean, I think you got to take care of yourself, whatever, whatever it is, whether it's going to the gym, whether it's spending time with your family, whether it's, you know, painting in your off time, just have something. And, it, and you can still love food, cook at home, cook with your family, cook mm-hmm. with your kids, you know, but setting, I think setting boundaries. I wish I'd set boundaries earlier on because we learned so much about like, this is the chef life, right? Like right. my dad even told me when I was going to culinary school, you realize you're going to work every night and every weekend and you're not going to see people. Like that's what I was told at 18 years old. And then you're, then it's expected. I did not go to my grandfather's funeral 
because I was in culinary school and at Johnson and Wales, every day you miss from lab, you lose seven point, no, seven or nine points off your grade. So you're starting with a 91 or a 93 or something like that. And I was just like, I need to do well in school. And I didn't go to my grandfather's funeral. Like Mm. how, how fucked up is that? You know, like, but that was just how it was. Like, that's what everyone was like. It's like, Oh, I'm not going to skip class for this thing. And yeah. So having regrets from an early age, I decided, you know, I hit 40 and I'm like, we're not doing this for the rest of my life. You know, you bring up a really, really interesting topic and one that I wish I was more aware of earlier in my career. And that's this idea of setting boundaries. You know, I was trained, shamed and conditioned to, you know, suck it up sunshine and, and embrace the grind because that's what it is. And so I realized that there was this lionization of overwork even amongst each other, like as a culture amongst chefs, you know, bragging to one another about, you know, how many hours I've done this week and what, you know, the challenges that I've had to overcome as if it's necessary to sacrifice ourselves for our vision or our passion. Uh, And that's something that I broke against quite a bit. I also will argue with anybody because there's this self-identification as chef, as who I am versus what I happen to do for a living. And you bring up some great points of missing some critically important milestones in your life that anybody in any other industry would have like, yeah, okay, bereavement leave 10 days. See you later, man. Take care of that. And so this idea of creating boundaries. And I think since the millennials started entering the, the workforce and the Gen Zers, you know, this has become more and more prominent and has pissed a lot of old timers off because they're like, well, fuck, I didn't get that. Well, the point is, is that we all wanted that. And it's just like when I came up in the industry, I looked around, I'm like, there's no fucking way I'm going to open up my mouth and, and, and look like an idiot because it just wasn't available. And now it's almost like through the grace of these young people coming up in the industry going like, it doesn't have to be this way that we're realizing like, you know what? You're absolutely right. It doesn't have to be that way. And how can I provide that opportunity for you as well as embracing it in myself? And so this whole idea of setting clear boundaries also has to work in concert with a realization that you have core values and that some of them are non-negotiable. And that's kind of the bulk of my work in assisting chefs is to really embrace that as a way moving forward so that any choice that you make if it's congruent with your core values, it's pretty, pretty much a gravy train, right? Because every day you're going to work and people are, are like-minded and they're kind of wrapped around the same ideals. And so I want to kind of round back to this conversation about community, because I also realized that community, the only reason that people will join a community is because they uh, embrace those shared core values. And so if you can't articulate what the shared value is, then it's really hard for people to go like, yeah, I really believe in that, man. You you hope, you hope, you you know, and there's always going to be a couple spoilers. Yeah. And you don't want everything to be an echo chamber. I think, you know, we've seen that a lot with political, you know, landscape where everything's getting so polarized and you're in one camp or another camp and there's no moderation. But, you know, for me, the big thing is I talk about loneliness. Yeah, I I was, so I'm in charge of this big kitchen. I had 125 people directly reporting to me. You have the rapport. I had a lot of people I loved working with. And, you know, hey, man, taste this. Like, what do you think? And that flow, everyone knows that feeling of working on a line with someone and you enjoy that. And then you quit. And the next day you're like, wow, this is quiet. You know, my wife went to work, my kids go to school and I'm 
here by myself and I'm just working on some menus and then you go to, you know, mm-hmm. the kitchen and you're, you know, making some food by yourself, listening to music or podcasts. And it's like, I wanted to have a community, not just to, you know, be able to get gig leads from and learn stuff from, but just because I missed hanging out with people. I mean, how many times have you said like your best friends are the people you work with? Cause you spend so much time with them, especially in a kitchen environment. And then I had no one overnight. So it was building a community, which, you know, started online kind of, but like, how can it trickle off into real world? So for me, an important thing was like, we had a meetup almost instantly. As soon as the group launched, we found a place in DC and, you know, 20 of us got together and it was great to meet up for the first time. And I really love, uh, doing kind of like collaborative pop-ups, not because they're big money makers or anything else, then I just miss cooking with people. So, you know, I've done a handful of those where it's, you know, you rent an Airbnb and sell tickets on Eventbrite and just cook cook with someone you love. And we we always joke about like, oh, wow, I lost a lot of money doing this dinner. <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully not too much. But, you know, just because it, it's fun, but having people that you like and, and share ideas with, it's tough. You know, I've got this Facebook community and I've had to go to, I have to moderate everything before it posts. I don't let everyone just post everything. It it takes a little more time, but things have gotten a little out of control as a community grows, because that's the hard thing. Again, I started super locally. I knew almost everyone personally, or they were one degree removed. And now I just have random people all over the world wanting to join a Facebook group. And then they come Mm -hmm. in and they start spamming their business or dropping weird comments. But sometimes there are disagreements where I'll let it go a little bit. Let's see where this goes. Like, sure. uh, th- that's not my feeling. I don't want to be the one dictating what everyone's allowed to see. And that's where it gets into a gray area. It's like, okay, we have two members who are at odds here. And then other people are jumping in to take sides. And I'll let it see. And then at some point, I might say, okay, that's your one warning. And then I'll have to shut comments off on it. You know? Right. So, I but mean, I think all in all, it's been a, a good community. I, I love that idea of allowing some space for contrarian conversation because I know that there are some Facebook groups for chefs that are incredibly polarized and you know, you get in there and whether the overarching thing is just to talk shit about everybody else in the industry and post these fucked up memes. Um, you know, that's not part of any organization or community I want to be in because there's all kinds of reasons, man, to, feel shitty about our situations, but ultimately that's being a victim of our circumstance. And I know personally speaking that nothing ever changed in my life until I shifted that one particular thought and that what's happening in my life today is a, is a sum total of my thoughts, feelings, and actions over the last three or four days. And so if I want something different to show up tomorrow, then that means I actually have to change where I'm at right now, regardless of outside circumstance, you know, that reflects back this new reality that I want to bring into life. And anybody who's into meditation, Chris, I'm sure that you get this, Mm -hmm. that like in the moment is where everything changes for us moving forward. And I think with the internet, it's so easy to, to make snap judgments, comments. And I'll tell you, I remember one time there was a dish online and it, it looked kind of ridiculous and it was going around. I don't know you know, I don't know that it was attributed to anyone and it just didn't look great. It was kind of like kitschy or whatever. And I commented something on it. And what I, and what I didn't realize was it was actually from a really good friend of mine and he was part of a charity dinner and they were supposed to create dishes inspired by works of art. And all the money was going towards a really great charity. And he had donated his time and his product. And I felt like, a complete jerk because I was yeah. one of the people, you know, it was just one of those things that almost went around on Facebook as I mean, like, <laughs> have you guys seen this? 
Like right. who eats this crap? Right. And I had made some comment, like I wouldn't eat that if you paid me. And then you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I know who did, you know, like I didn't know the context because that's what we're so attuned to now. Everything is stripped of context. You and I are doing this conversation right now and someone watches it and I say one thing and they just like screen record it. And then it's like a meme on TikTok sure. now and it's taken out of context and, and you don't know. We, we talked about this on my podcast with a guest a couple of weeks ago where he said, you know, what I love about long form content is it's the receipts. He said, you know, like if you get, canceled or whatever over something at least you have 200 episodes that people can go back to and listen and just say like no this isn't you know it was taken out of context because i think it's right. so easy for us to take all these things out of context these days so at uh, least i think having like long form content having you know a paper trail or an audio trail of years and years of your beliefs and how you are you know you can kind of at least fall back on that if nothing else that's a fascinating way to look at it and i have to agree Listen, Chris, it's clear that you and I could be talking about this all day. I want to be respectful of your time and also the listener's time. We've got some great stuff recorded, and I just want to say thank you so much for making time for us. Oh, thank you for having me. Of course, I, I've enjoyed talking to you. I, I love following what you do, and you have some great people on the show. <laughs> Thanks. Now, for our regular listeners, we're going to segue into the On the Dock episode, and as you know if you are a subscriber to this show, that these episodes are specifically for our subscriber members. They get all the content, all the back catalog, everything. And if you'd like to know more about it, you can go to chefliferadio.com forward slash, uh, forward slash support. And for our current members, I just want to say thank you very much for supporting the show. It really makes a, a heck of a big deal to me and gives me an opportunity to have people like Chris on the show. So thanks. That's it for this episode of Chef Life Radio. If you enjoyed the episode and you want to hear more, then you're going to want to head over to chefliferadio.com forward slash support to find out more about becoming a Chef Life Radio crew sustaining member and have access to on the dock episodes, our full back catalog and many more perks. Again, find out more at chefliferadio.com forward slash support. And the link is in the show notes. Here at Chef Life Radio, we believe that working in a kitchen should be demanding. It just shouldn't have to be demeaning. It should be hard. It just doesn't have to be harsh. We believe that it's possible to have more solidarity and less suck-it-up sunshine, more compassion, less cutthroat island. We believe in more partnership and less put-up or shut-up, more family, and less fuck you. Stand tall and frosty, brothers and sisters, but consider for a moment, for all the blood, sweat, and effort you put into what you do at the end of the day, just some stuff on a plate. None of it really matters. It doesn't define you as a person or make you any more special or less than anyone else. It's just the dance that we're engaged in, so we might as well laugh and enjoy every bit of it. Or didn't you know that the purpose of your life should be to enjoy it? Like it, happy. I fucking love it. I am humble. The goddamn glory box that I don't live on now. <laughs> Reach out to the show at facebook.com forward slash Chef Life Radio, Twitter at Chef Life Radio. Instagram at Chef Life Radio. Visit the website at chefliferadio.com. Subscribe to the podcast at any of the major podcasts directories. Please take a moment and give us a thumbs up and write a review. It really does help spread the news. Thanks for listening. Until the next episode, be well and do good. This episode was produced by me, Adam Lamb. It was recorded in a basement bunker studio 
in Bardo, North Carolina. Co-produced by Thomas Stephenson of podlike.com. Chef Life Radio is a production of Realignment Media.